0: Hello everybody, I'm Matt Wolford and this is Trium Connects.
1: Nigeria's greatest problem with corruption was the fact that it gave an excuse for merit to be pushed down in terms of priority and mediocrity to be embraced. most powerful innovation comes from process innovation, Mm. changing the mindset of the people engaged in a value chain. Once you have that process revolution, you have exponential innovation across every vertical and horizontal of that value chain.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of Triumph Connects. My guest for this week's episode is Aik Boje Aik Imokwede, and I have to tell you that Ike is one of the most impressive people that I've had the privilege to have a conversation with on Trium Connects. The amazing story of Aik's rise to be one of Africa's most successful business and social entrepreneurs it begins with him being hired as a lawyer at Continental Merchant Bank in 1988. While his formal training was in law, his heart was always in banking and finance. In 1991, he joined the Guaranteed Trust Bank, and by 2002, at the age of 36, he was an executive director. This was a very secure and highly respected position at a very young age. And so, what does I decide to do? He decides to quit that job and instead gets together with his friend Herbert Wigway, and together they raise the equivalent of 10 million US dollars to buy the controlling stake in a struggling small bank in Nigeria called Access Bank. Under Ike's leadership, Access Bank grew by a factor of 65 over a time period of 11 years. That's right, 65 times bigger, with a market capitalization when he left in 2013 of over 1.3 billion US he tells the story of the acquisition of Access Bank and its growth through the time of his leadership in a fascinating book called Leaving the Tarmac, Buying a Bank in Africa. It is that story that we'll focus on in this episode of Triumph Connects. After his time at Access Bank, Ike goes on to become the founder and chairman of Coronation Capital with the ambition to create an African BlackRock, But that's a whole nother story. So there's really no doubt that Ige is just an amazing businessman. However, one gets the feeling after talking to him and looking in the whole at his career that business is not his only passion. In fact, one can make the argument that his commitment to development, development in not only Nigeria but in Africa as a whole, is at least as important as his business interests. For example, he is the founder and chairman of the Africa Initiative for Governance. This pioneering initiative brings proven private sector innovation and leadership and funding in a kind of private-public partnership to try to attract and inspire future leaders in the public sector in Africa. And with the continuing support, hopefully these high-caliber individuals will then drive best practice standards of governance across the entire continent, and thus helping to ensure sustainable economic growth as well as social justice. In addition to his initiative, he has social and entrepreneurial philanthropic engagements, which include the chairman of Friends of Africa, which is a partner organization of the Global Fund, co-chairman of the board of GBC Health, founding member of the private sector health alliance in Nigeria and the chairman of the Business Coalition for Sustainable Development of Nigeria, as well as a board member of Aiko Dongote Foundation. He has received national and international recognition, both for his philanthropic work as well as his business career. This includes being a commander of the Order of the Niger, which was conferred by the Republic of Nigeria, and also as Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year for West Africa. Really, my friends, I could go on and on with more and more of these awards, but I think that's enough to give you an idea of the breadth and scope of the accomplishments of this very special man. So, without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with Ike Boje, Ike Imwokwede. Ike Boje, Ike
1: Imwokwede.
0: Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Now, look, before we jump into the story of your buying Access Bank and turning it around and building it into such a powerful brand and all your adventures after that, I thought it might be interesting to start with a little bit of your background because you cover this uh, a little bit in your book entitled Leaving the Tarmac, Buying a Bank in Africa, which, which I found to be a fascinating book. And one of the things that I that came up over and over, both in this book and in other interviews I've seen you give, that you have this profound belief in how our history shapes who we are and how we see the world. And I completely agree with this. And I I found the discussion of your growing up fascinating because it provides a real insight, I think, into your later achievements and actions. And one of the things I found really interesting was that your parents were civil servants in a time when the civil service in Nigeria was maybe very different from what it is today. And you describe how their status changed through time. And I just wondered, can you give us a little idea of how that status changed through time and how it might've affected your own life watching what was this kind of super professional civil service degrade into something different?
1: Well, thanks. Um, So, My two favorite subjects, and they remain, are history and economics. Probably history, for me, more profound than economics. Strange, given that uh, I have pursued a career in finance, uh, and that is what pays my bills. But if I think through Africa and African history, and the reality that for most African countries, there was a period where they were, in a sense, governed or ruled by an external party, a colonial master, okay? And so this colonial heritage has significantly influenced the course and trajectory of Africa's growth post-colonialism even after they won their independence, okay? Now, um, typically Africa was uh, ruled and they called it the division of Africa uh, by European, Uh, countries, Uh, some of them uh, at the point in time that they uh, were our colonial masters still had some royal aspect to their governance methods. But most of them had embraced full democracy. And most of them were typified by very, very strong and effective public sectors. And If there was one thing that across Africa, uh, the the colonial master understood, it was building countries that had a very, very strong uh, civil service or public service. And just like you would have in most advanced societies, the realization of the amount of power in policy making and policy implementation And therefore, that entrusting that power to only the best was the most sensible thing to do was very much understood. And so um, the conditions of service for the civil servant and the way and manner by which you you channeled the talent within the country to the civil service basically meant that you were trying to get the best of the best into the civil service. And that's exactly what happened. And so you would find that if you read the uh, CVs of the civil servant in my parents' time, okay, um, don't be surprised that you would find uh, people who would go on to win Nobel prizes and things like that in the African civil service because simply put, they were world-class talent.
0: I'll
1: give you an example. Uh, If I remember the Nigerian Broadcasting Corporation, the equivalent of maybe the BBC at 27, or 20, I, I, anyway, in his mid-20s, the director of broadcasting in Nigeria was a guy called Chino Achebe. That was when he wrote uh, Things Fall Apart, No Longer at Ease. It just gives you the type of um, capacity that was that was inherent in, in, our, in our public service. Uh, and parliamentary records in the UK uh, speak very, very strongly to the fact that there was a healthy respect for the Nigerian civil service, you know, globally. So for that reason, um, we started off in Nigeria, just like many, a number of other African countries, very well. And, you know, there was this statement by Lee Kuan Yu where he said, you know, with, he had to visit Africa because with the people he was, he had gone to school with. Uh, so I think he was an Oxbridge type, you know, uh, you know, so you'd had, you know, and a lot of Nigerians went to LSE as well at that time. So, you know, he'd interacted with these people. He knew they were in the civil service and he thought this was going to be Singapore's greatest competition. Right. Uh, so That's the context. Sorry, I've had to give you this history, but- No, that's no. The so I grew up as a child of civil servants. I grew up feeling that um, uh, service to your country was the most important thing that you could do. And understanding where Nigeria was heading. And not just Nigeria, because um, I was also privileged to interact with, um, other civil servants from across Africa who came to visit or work, you know, uh, with their Nigerian counterparts. Nigeria being the leading example of the British civil service or the British-inspired civil service. And so, you know, I had an idea of where Nigeria was going. I had a complete belief that Nigerians could be as good as citizens of any nation in any field of endeavor. Any, sure, I still do. Yeah, and. Um, I also just felt like um, the child of any uh, civil servant would that, you know, yes, you know, you knew your parents would never be wealthy. It was never about wealth, but you knew that um, they were highly regarded by the state, that they had um, a place in society of influence as a result of their intellect and their contribution. And to a certain degree, also, you could say their power, uh, their administrative power. And um, you know that was how we, we viewed our parents. My parents were able to send us to very good schools, we were able to ensure that um, we had the you know the best of what we were capable of, of doing. So you know, and not anything different from you know if if your father worked or your mother worked in um, I don't know a state, um, parastatal or the, the core civil service you know math you understand what i'm saying
0: sure sure and were these schools um, for the children of the civil servants or were they open to other people as well
1: no well, open to anybody but i mean just in the same way as you know the civil service took the best of the best it wasn't strange that their children went sure. to the schools where the best of the best you know uh, ended up you know same thing everywhere you have that in france you have that in, sure. in england and germany and so on so um but then you know, um, in front of me, this whole African dream, this Nigerian story kind of just disintegrated literally overnight in the midst in in like ni- about 1979, 1980, um, after I returned to democracy. And um, it was just basically poor economic management. And one of the consequences of our uh, economic crisis was a massive underinvestment in the civil service. So the first people to suffer, the first aspect of the Nigerian society to suffer uh, and underinvestment was the civil service. It was the silliest thing to do because our only hope of turning around this, you know, or meeting the challenges of of economic um, crisis was a strong civil service, you know. Um, and so all of a sudden, uh, civil servants earning power, you know. <laughs> Plummeted, uh, pensions were not paid, it became the most unattractive job to do in Nigeria. And so it's quite a it's quite a chastening uh, experience for a child to see your, your parents and their contemporaries, who could be ambassadors or whatever it is, all of a sudden, you know, slide down uh, the pool of influence overnight. You know, and it was traumatic for me. I said to myself, I would never work for the civil service.
0: At one point, did you think you would go on to work for them before?
1: I would say that um, I really couldn't, up till when I was 10 years old, I couldn't think of anything else to do. It. I mean, it's either at that point in time, you're either going to work for the civil service or you're going to work in military service. Right. You know, the private sector was not the elite option.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you, you talk about institutional development and, and all through the world, the post-colonial period was mired by the fact that in many places, the only institutions that were developed were uh, tied to the military. Um, and they, therefore the institutional strength of the military in many, many countries was stronger than the institutional, straits, the, the institutional strength in civil society. And, th- and that set up a kind of conflict that people in these places have been living with since. And because of the strength of the institutional that the, the not the strength but the imbalance in the institutional strengths across different elements of civil society. But anyway, so you see this happening before your eyes. This this dream kind of, as you said, dissolves in front of your eyes. You decide that's not for you, that that that's not the the way to go. So you've trained to become a lawyer, right? But you're a lawyer who went into banking. So How did that change? When you were training to be a lawyer, did you have in mind that you would go into finance or was this something that just happened?
1: So um, my view, which was very much shaped by this experience, was that, look, listen, I'm going to the private sector. And my ambition then was to lead a multinational. At that time, indigenous talent was only just beginning to be permitted to to run multinationals across Hmm. Africa. Up to this point in time, even though they had wonderful people, there was a glass ceiling. You yeah. could get to the second level, okay, like a deputy CEO, but the CEO position tended to be um, reserved for an expatriate. And I looked at a number of um, of uh, CEOs or well, not CEOs, number twos, uh, and I noticed that law seemed to be a very uh, common future of their of their qualifications. So I didn't study law because in any way I intended to go to court or practice it. I got you. you know, right.
0: It was now, an instrumental choice.
1: Yes. Um, but then I still, you know, um, so it might, for, my, for me, it was all about, you know, working in a multinational. Okay. Um, and then during my, just as I, was, as I was graduating, most of my friends were gravitating towards the banking sector, which aside from oil and gas, uh, was the sector that seemed to offer the most uh, what's the word now exciting career prospects in terms of further development, um, great uh, remuneration, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. yeah and so it was actually as I was graduating that I decided that I was going to work in a bank. okay uh-huh.
0: And so you decided to go to work in a bank and at the time, the Nigerian banking or the finance system was was very, very different. I think in 1991, you say in your book, there was 140 different Nigerian banks, lots of really little small banks. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about when you entered into the industry as this young lawyer going into the finance industry, what what was the environment like then? If we, if we were to go back to that time and you were to describe, what's, what's the financial kind of institutions look like at that point in Nigeria?
1: So, um, banking interestingly, wasn't as dominant as it is now. When I say banking, I'm saying deposit deposit money banking or commercial bank wasn't as dominant as it is now. So there was a greater balance between the deposit money back market and the capital markets and the insurance sector, more of a, the, the kind of traditional balance you would find in terms of market share financial services as you, uh, as you have in, in, in Europe today, but. The banking sector had what we call the big four. And essentially these were large retail banks that, you know, were today in today's terms greater than a hundred years old. And um, you they dominated in terms of market share, very traditional, very bureaucratic and largely served the savings aspect of the banking public, uh, extremely, extremely slow to innovate, and atrocious, you know, (laughs) atrocious uh, customer service. So kind
0: of four big fat incumbents that that had grown grown a bit lazy.
1: Yes. And uh, controlling at the time, probably between the four of them, 75% of the market.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: You then had the merchant banks which were these um, uh, American system run um, investment banks. okay, And uh, very, very different type of person working in these banks. Usually uh, somebody who had an MBA from an Ivy League or Russell Institution in in the UK and um, had a completely different trajectory, uh, well-paid relative to their commercial banking or retail banking counterparts. But it wasn't a balance sheet game, but these were the guys who were responsible for like building and financing the economy, particularly through the capital markets. Those were the two types of banking institutions that existed at the time I was coming in. Obviously, I wasn't going to work in a retail bank, so I went to work in what used to be Chase. but there was um,
0: loads of other ones, right? I mean, you you, you tell the story in the book about so, this so, massively crowded with lots of little banks everywhere. What was what so exactly the rest the of
1: it? Remember, I went in in 1988. Okay. So between 1988 and 1991, uh, we went from what must have been something like 20 banks to 140 odd banks. Right. So, yeah. So in a two-year period or three-year period, you know, you... Basically quadrupled the size, or what am I even saying? You, you know, it grew by five or six actually. Yeah, uh, times you know the number of banks, and you can imagine what happens with that type of growth. You know, you have all types of commerce. You know, uh, you know a banking license is pretty much like picking up um, what a grocery, a grocery store <laughs> license. Literally, I mean, you know. So the whole idea was not about what you were going to do with the bank. It was about whether you knew. Enough people who could get your banking license.
0: Okay, and why was it desirable? Why did so many people want this banking license? What did they do with it?
1: Well, the first thing was that banks took deposits and gave loans. So if you were a businessman and you wanted to fund your businesses, right, and you looked at the retail banks and all the all the slow, ponderous response to your loan requests, etc., this okay. was a viable option. Yeah. The other thing, of course, probably more attractive was the whole issue of foreign exchange. And I told you about how, you know, we had the economic crisis. And after that initial economic crisis where one Naira was, the Naira was actually stronger, you know, on a um, denomination basis than the dollar. Okay. Right. Okay. Um. So you now go to, by this time, maybe you've had as much as a, 300, 400 percent devaluation of four. So a dollar was could now buy you four naira as opposed to a dollar buying you under a naira. Okay. Right. So the license to deal in foreign exchange was held only by banks. So again, for um a player in the economy, all right, that license was deemed to be very valuable. So those are the two reasons why people went for these licenses.
0: Yeah, so they could use it. To use official official exchange rates for importation, and then they could use uh, more market rates, and the and the and the arbitrage across those two things was huge.
1: Typically, you know, huge. You found that in uh, Latin America, Asia. Yes, uh, <laughs>
0: I, I lived in Bolivia in 1983, and there was um, they had hyperinflation, and I can remember exchanging dollars for. Pesos at that time in in a square, you know, with the money dealers in the square, and the the official rate in the bank was something like one one hundredth of what you could get on the street. So the I, I I'm a little bit familiar with. I'm sure in Nigeria it wasn't that extreme, but it was it was certainly an opportunity for banks if they had access to that official exchange rate could make a lot of money. Um, so you you go into Uh, not one of the small banks, you have a quite successful career working in the banking industry up to a certain point. And at a certain point, in fact, you describe it in the book and in different places. I think you were at a training in Harvard and you made the decision that you retired or you decided you didn't want to work for other people anymore. And you wanted to own your own business. And you decided along with your colleague and friend, Herbert Wigway, is that pronounced correctly? Yeah,
1: Herbert yeah,
0: you decided to buy a bank and you bought Access Bank. So, what I want to ask you is of all the type of businesses to buy, and I know that you were in the banking industry, so maybe it was a natural thing. Why buy a bank and why buy Access Bank? Because at the time, I guess I wouldn't call Access Bank a particularly attractive target for acquisition. So, can you tell us that story?
1: So, Matt, I'm going to take you back to the point you made about the bank I worked in. Okay. And the fact that it wasn't um, one of the small banks. So, it did start off as one of the small banks, one of those banks that got its license around about 1990. Okay. It was one of the 120 new banks. All right. But of the 120 new banks, I would say that um, prior to when – so, let's call it this – let's call this the first phase of my banking career, okay? Um, there were about 10 to 15 of those banks that had certain similar futures or characteristics that made them emerge as the leading banks in Nigeria alongside these four banks that I had talked about before. Okay. And so it was basically one that they used technology they drove a high-performance culture. Yeah, um, They were very customer-centric. Okay, And I think the last was that, to a large degree, they applied much better risk management and professional approaches to running a bank than the others. So as you would imagine, over time, the industry... Um, basically 90% of the industry assets and liabilities were controlled by these 20 banks. Okay. Now, it just happened that GT Bank that I was in, okay, and I rose very fast in, was probably the best of those 20 banks. Yep. Access Bank, as you rightly observed, was not one of the best (laughs) of the 140 banks. So it wasn't in the top 20, and it was way, way, way down the pecking order. So I guess your question then is, uh, why Access Bank of all these? But okay, but why, why a bank first? First of all, look, listen. If you're going to, if you're going to risk your life on anything, make sure you do it on something you know, something you've mastered. Uh, you know, this was going to be uh, the greatest risk I've taken. I was betting not just my career; I was betting my family's future, economic future, and so you know. Um, let me just,
0: yeah, let me just jump in there because I think I want people to realize just what risk you were taking. So, you and your mate get together. You both contribute to, between the two of you around two million U.S. dollars, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you need eight million more to get a, a controlling stank of Access Bank. So that would get you up to fifty-two percent. I think that that's right. Yeah. So you needed about ten million. So that that would give people an idea of the capitalization of Access Bank at that time. So with ten million, you could take over a controlling share. You have this wonderful discussion in the book about godfathers or ogas, which are kind of, which I understand it in the Nigeria. Well, it's better for you to describe. What is a godfather in the Nigerian context of finance? Uh,
1: let's say a godfather in the Nigerian context, in the Nigerian political economy. Okay. Okay. So every political economy actually goes through this phase. And the thing that whittles the power and influence of the godfather is the strength of the institutions in that political economy right the the institutions become the less the importance relevance and power of the political godfather now this godfather is necessary simply because institutions don't work so they are not bad people they just emerge because either you know, institutions don't work, and you need protection. You need, uh, you need somebody to who can lobby on your behalf. You know, and so on. That's how they emerge. Now, you'd in every society have two types. You would have the benevolent um, Father Christmas type. You know, <laughs> you know, and you would have the the quite the opposite, which is you know the uh, power wielding vulture type. You know. Sure, so we have both types, you know, Yeah, yeah. Um, but I didn't want to live with any type. I mean, right. you know, I, you know, as far as I was, I'm concerned, I'm a banker. I'm better at running a bank than you are. Why would you be more important, you know, to my banking life or a bank than I am? Okay. Um, and by the way, I, I wasn't the only person who thought like this. Yeah, there yeah. Were others who had preceded us who thought this way. So, so the that- only thing was that. How do you prove your independence? The only way to prove your independence was to take the risk. Yeah. You see, once you went to these guys, I said, "Give me the capital." Then you wouldn't run the bank. Okay, even if you founded the bank, you wouldn't run the bank. So to have your independence, you had to risk your career and your life by mobilizing capital that you controlled.
0: Yeah. So you have, but but this is what I think is so interesting because one one strategic choice you could have made. Would be to say okay we we have two we need eight i'm gonna to have to get this backing from a godfather or hopefully a benevolent one and, and then you would be able to run but you decided not to do that as you said because you don't you wanted control and instead as i understand it in the book you you went to your family and friends and used a lot of their assets as collateral for a debt that would fund the rest of the acquisition is that right so I just wanted to point that out because when you say that you were taking a big risk, it was not only a risk of you, but risk of your friends and your family that were investing in you as well. So that must have been a a huge risk to take. Yes.
1: In a sense, yes. But then in truth, every startup or turnaround has this element in it. Sure. It's just a function of how much capital you, you, you are going to be bringing to the table. I can't think of any single success story where friends and family haven't played <laughs> this type of role. Um, oh, but also understand that this is, I mean, we this we were we were the ones providing the support by which entrepreneurs in Nigeria, including banking entrepreneurs, okay, did this kind of thing. So we knew exactly how to structure, we knew what to do. Sure. Right. So it it appears like a crazy risk it was a big risk but not crazy
0: yeah so buy a bank you need the cash you get the cash and then you decide or you have decided on access bank so you knew how much cash you needed so why access you said it wasn't in the top 20 you say in other places it wasn't it it wasn't uh, other people weren't interested in it
1: at best of the 90 banks you may now we have had strong regulators in Nigeria. So of those 140 banks in 1988, by 1995, 50 or 60% of them had had their, no, 50 of them had had their licenses taken by the central bank. Okay. Okay, so we had 90 left. All right. And Access Bank had dodged license taking about twice. Okay. (laughs) So it gives you some perspective as to so, so here we are. We've made our careers in GTB. Um, uh, we were the three and four ranking, you know, professionals in the in the organization. Um, certainly, the youngest executive directors of the leading banks in Nigeria at the time, um, and super got,
0: respected, right? You have a lot of respect and status at that point.
1: So, I mean, in you know for my mom that was a bigger risk not even the financial risk it was just simply look listen you can play it safe it's almost guaranteed that you're going to lead the banking industry why 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 go this um entrepreneurial route that was yeah, my, yeah. My, my mom's view which is absolutely correct but uh we had uh, a self-confidence uh that came out of having done it you know i mean i look there were times that in the absence of the CEO and his deputy in GTB, I ran the bank. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we felt that, we look, listen, we've done it. We can do it again. And this time be motivated for doing it ourselves. But anyway, so of course, when we started, we thought we would be able to buy something that kind of resembled GTB. And I remember <laughs> I remember going to see this friend who was a customer of ours, who was a controlling shareholder in, let's say, uh, bank number 10 in Nigeria. And saying, "Look, right, let's let's do a deal. Let's buy your bank." And this guy was not—I mean, great guy. Um, I see him once in a while, um, more in the UK now than in, in Nigeria. But um, he's much older than us. Um, and but he was Nigerian national, but not Nigerian, not Nigerian by birth. And just simply because I don't want—if I mentioned where he came from, it wouldn't be difficult to find out who I'm talking about. Okay. And so. We go and meet him and say, you know what, we want to buy. We want to buy your bank, and he says, really, okay. Uh, and he didn't tell us, you know, uh, get out of here. He says, okay, make me a, make me an offer. So we go do our valuations and come do a pitch to him, and he says no, and he goes off and gets um, this American investment bank to value his his bank, okay, and gives us a count offer. And I see it and I say to him, look, listen, I said, are you trying to sell the Mona Lisa or something? I mean, what valuation (laughs) basis is this? I remember that conversation. And I remember what he said in response. He said, if you don't like my valuation, guys, go do your own. Go build your own bank from scratch. And then you can value it in any way you choose to. And what he said was, you know, uh, really prophetic. If we couldn't afford, you know, to pay top dollar for a top bank, right? We shouldn't put our sites in any, in any way in the top 10. Go to the bottom of the barrel. Um, then we started searching bottom of the barrel of banks. After, you know, and we went through about um, 10. Uh, and in truth, even then Access Bank was not even on our list to be honest, because it was, but you know, Access Bank had a few things going for it, which we didn't realize. Uh, one, it was listed on the stock market, two, it had decent technology, banking technology, Um, and I guess the third was that even though it had a few godfathers who had come together to put this bank to, you know, and they were very much in control, and you had that checkered history, at the end of the day, the, the problem with the bank was not in its value system per se, okay? It was in its inability to get an alignment between management and ownership. Okay. And so we then thought to ourselves, well, you know, this from just a, a classic acquisition and turnaround, you know, um, story, this isn't a bad candidate. And then, uh, you know, look, listen, it was the reason why it was so uh, available was that they had done a public offer. Remember, I told you it was listed on the stock market, which yeah. had failed woefully. Yeah, and what was available on sale was fifty-two percent of the bank. Right, and so all we needed to was raise, raise the capital, and we had fifty-two percent of the bank. It had, um, and we went that you know you've done the math already, and uh, that's how that played out.
0: Just so we can jump forward to give people an idea of where we're headed on this uh, story. So at that point the market cap for that bank was just under 20 million US. And what's the, when you left the bank, what was the market capitalization at that point?
1: You mean 2013 when I left the bank? Yeah. Um, About $1.3 billion,
0: something like that. So 1.3 billion. So from 20 to 1.3 billion in, 20 million to 1.3 billion in how many years? 11. Eleven years. So, so just to give people an idea of of talking about the scale of this turnaround. So, what, what's interesting is you decide this, you, you you decide on access. You buy it, and then you describe. And this is what I found really surprising. So, you can tell me a little bit about this. Then you sit down and say, "What is our value proposition going to be?" And what I wonder is, did you really not have an idea of how what your value proposition was going to be before you bought the bank? Because usually you would kind of have a value proposition and you're looking for a vehicle to implement that value proposition. And in this case, you tell the story that, that uh, you and Herbert bought the bank and then you sat down and said, okay, how are we going to make this work? What is our value proposition going to be? And was that the sequence?
1: So, I mean, I'm not going to give you this idea or this notion that we didn't have a sense of a value proposition before we did it. Mm. Uh, even though if you read the book, you could conclude that. Um, remember that we were bankers. We were high performers, highly competitive banking sector, always thinking about beating uh, those around us or those who were coming to challenge you know, us. Okay, But one thing is clear, we knew some of the things that could be done to give us a problem. And okay. some of those things were being done by competitors. Most of them were not. Okay? okay. All right. That's one. The second thing is that we, and again, this is part of why you want your independence. All right. There are a number of things that any leader in, an, in any institution may think that makes sense for the organization, but you do not have the authority to push through. So you had those two things. We had things that we felt we should be doing, we were not doing, because we didn't have that final authority to push through, we are not CEO. Gotcha. Things that we knew could be done to us to destabilize us.
0: Right. Oh, interesting. So- you went through a double problem. One, you kind of had the idea that we, well, this would be great to do, but we don't have the authority to do it. If we ever had the opportunity, that would be really great. And also you thinking, wow, if somebody did this, we'd be in trouble because yes. it'd be it'd be hard for us to compete. And you came up with what I, I just think it's, a, it's just such a brilliant kind of strategy for this turnaround. And you call it a value chain strategy. And can you explain, I mean, in your own words, what this was and how it worked to start to attract banking business to this small kind of low-status bank, and suddenly it started exploding with business. And, and 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 this was all because of this value chain strategy. And maybe because you, you touch on it a little bit in the book, but maybe you can tell us, kind of use as an exemplar, how you got into the telecom industry or how you got into the banking of the telecom industry as a kind of illustrator of what this value chain strategy was about.
1: Okay, before I do that, though, there okay. was something you were pointing out, which is, so, which is important, I guess, for anybody listening, uh, and which I kind of wanted to bring out in the book. I don't think anybody who does an acquisition and tells you they know what they're going to be doing Post acquisition with the with the institution they bought before it. I don't think they're being honest. <laughs> okay. And that was our reality. So what we brought out clearly in the book, or what I what I wrote about was that look, it wasn't until the day that we had acquired Access Bank. And that same day, of course, resumed in office as CEO and deputy CEO that we were able to fashion out a cogent strategy because before then, we just didn't know what yeah. we had bought. Yeah, And I think that describes 100% of acquisition.
0: Oh, I completely agree. You never know what you bought until you actually put your, put your head under the hood, so to speak, and start exactly. to look at the things that aren't in the nice stacks of the valuation.
1: Yeah. So what I then was alluding to in the book was that that night... Because of the funding pressure, okay, associated with the leverage in the deal and so on, we had to fashion out that uh, game plan. Okay, We didn't want a situation where there was anything more than a 24-hour gap between acquiring this institution and our declaring that this was our game plan.
0: And pushing it through. Okay.
1: So what was our game plan? Okay, so... A combination of what we would have loved to do and what we knew if our competition brought to the the table and we were not able to respond, we'd have a problem. Now, um, underdeveloped markets, okay? When you take any value chain, you will find that the leading producer of the most significant item of value in that value chain has significant power and influence over every single player in the value chain, including government. Okay. So we then said to ourselves, okay, fine. We have this high growth um, objective. Uh, we are one of the smallest banks in Nigeria. We have very, very, very little resources other than our brains and the talent of our people. When I'm saying little resources in terms of balance sheets and so on, sure, and, right. and so on. Okay." What is it that we would do that would take us very quickly up uh, the relevance of the Nigerian economy, both in terms of scope and scale? And so we said, okay, fine. If you then take each value chain and you you can identify this large, this most significant player, if you could come up with things that add value to that most significant player, either in terms of lowering their cost of doing business or increasing their revenues, they would literally give you a pass to every other player in that value chain because of their significant influence.
0: So you start to go up and down the value chain away from that powerful node?
1: No, not away from that powerful node. Actually, we embrace that powerful node as its partner. Right. Right. By, and I will, I'll give you examples. Okay. on the, as, on the assumption that our powerful node will be our partner to reaching the rest of the value chain very quickly at scale at very little cost. Okay. So let me give you an example. So let's take telecoms. Yeah. And the telecom story in Nigeria was just beginning to unfold. The licenses had been issued around um, about 2002. And these guys were trying, well, 2001 actually. And these guys were trying to build out four licenses emerged, but let's say there were three players initially. And these guys were trying to build out their nationwide networks. Two things important to a telco. One is um, what I can call coverage. Uh, So when I say coverage, you are talking about enough cell sites, okay, to render, to give a decent service over the area that you, your license covers. Yep. So you can't be a Nigerian telco and you can only make calls in right. one of the Nigerian 36 states. You sure. have to do able to, okay, fine. Okay, so that's one. The other thing was that, okay, fine. Even if I do have this coverage, okay, how do I actually sell the airtime and collect money for the airtime I've sold? Okay. okay. So those were the two most important things.
0: Right. Now, um, and importantly, those weren't necessarily in-house to the telecom operator.
1: Well, let's, so just imagine again, this is so just again, so MTN is one of those operators you are in, you operate in South Africa or you originated from South Africa. You're in a few other African countries. You come to Nigeria. Okay. And you would say, okay, fine. I'll use my existing models and the things I know how to do to roll out these two issues. Fine. Okay. So let's say you're MTN and you come to discover that there is no retail footprint in Nigeria that you can partner with such as uh, big department stores, sure. you know, and so on. We just didn't have those type of, you know, you didn't have mall infrastructure and so on. Okay, fine. So how, how do you sell your airtime? Now in Nigeria, okay, you didn't have you couldn't go to a large contract, a large um, engineering company, and say, "Build out cell sites for me," because they weren't interested in doing that. Okay, and Nigeria is a large country, rough terrain, and so on. So yeah. you know, fine. So literally, we had to create, along with these, with with MTN, okay, we had to create a bunch of entrepreneurs who would do these two things, who would distribute airtime, and who would build out. Their, their infrastructure across Nigeria.
0: And so here's what I think is is just so brilliant about this plan. So it is both strategically sophisticated and locally adapted, Correct. right? And so you, you have a situation, and I love this example of, of the telecom. Telecom company moves in, they want to have service, they have these two things, What do you do as a bank? You say, okay, we will be your bank, but we are also gonna provide finance and partnerships to create all the auxiliary services that you need in order to make money. Yes. Because they don't exist right now. And so in order to do this, and this is what you said, what you had was your minds and your talents. So you did across the industry, and again, I'm just going through the book, you did these deep dives. You made sure that you understood that industry as well as the players, and probably better in that local environment, and was able to go all the way up and down the value chain to find not only your future customers, but to give your these node players, these powerful players, a better service than they could at other places, because it wasn't really that you were even just a bank, you were more like a consultancy and a development agency and all of these things all together. Is do I, do I get that right?
1: You described it absolutely correctly. And what's the, what, I mean, first of all, that means that we're not, we can't sleep. We're working much longer <laughs> hours. Okay. Yep. It's mentally challenging. It's physically challenging. It's draining. It's very exciting uh, for the very driven individual man or woman. It draws you to, so we, we were getting great people, you know, in terms of talent, but the reward was phenomenal and exponential exponential because imagine remember i just described to you buying access bank in 2002 mm. access bank is completely irrelevant as far as banking the likes of mtn okay completely irrelevant i mean yep. it has no hope in no hope <laughs> in hell of banking a name like that yeah by after one year okay right access bank was the biggest telecoms bank in nigeria Amazing. So you, you, because obviously, I mean, uh, competitors here, MTN's competitors here, they gravitate towards us. Uh, the same distributor for MTN is a distributor for the other company. The same sales sites, uh, engineering rollout company is the same engineering rollout company for the others. And so, you know, and so that was the story. And we took it from telcos to cement, manu- you know, and just, you know, across all types of value chains.
0: Yeah and what I what I find fascinating and this is no great technological innovation this is no you know when we think about innovation in so many spaces we think about technology or science and things like this this was kind of a, a process innovation you had an idea about how you would service your customers in a way that would both make them better off and you better off but it but it wasn't technology driven it was it was idea driven
1: Yes. And I think idea driven innovation is the most powerful because it, it pulls all the rest along with it. So these ideas had to be supported by technology. These sure, ideas have sure. supported by new innovation. So for example, we went from vending with uh, pieces of paper representing airtime, right? to scratch cards to virtual and now in Nigeria today, okay? it's now a ussd code by which you so you know that is that is cutting edge you know technology innovation that has you know um and uh but but you're right i think i still think the most powerful innovation comes from process innovation mm. changing the mindset of the people engaged in the value chain once you have that process revolution you have exponential innovation across every vertical and horizontal of that value chain.
0: And I couldn't agree more. And, and also, one of the things that I thought would be challenging about this, and you obviously managed well, is when you have service provision across these multiple tiers, the value chain, you must at some point face some sort of conflict of interest. So let's say, for example, just a simple case. you have a, Let's say you're providing really what's advise, advisory services with a banking kind of as a as an adjunct provider of services. So your advisor to, let's say, both a supplier and a buyer at the same time. Mm-hmm. When you're advising one how to maximize their value, at times that might mean hurting the value of the other because it's not always a positive sum game across the two of them. Mm-hmm. And so one of the challenges of this strategy must have been how you manage those potential conflict of interest in order to to get everybody's trust along the supply chain? Was that a challenge for you?
1: So, um, yes, it was. But I'll tell you something interesting. In the context of when you're growing the pie, okay, everybody involved, particularly if the pie is growing very fast, okay, everybody involved is ready to trade off this conflict, okay, for that growth. Everybody's ready to live with that conflict, knowing that the result is this growth and saying to themselves, at some point in time, okay, we will come up with these more refined rules to deal with conflict, okay? And was there conflict? Yes, were there bits, I me? Mean, were there points in time when, you know, telco versus distributors, distributors versus this and so on? Yeah, sometimes even government versus our clients, okay? Remember also that we were also the biggest... We became the biggest tax collecting institution from a telco revenue standpoint. I'm saying government revenue of of, uh, telco taxes. Oh, of
0: course, of course.
1: So, um, but isn't that a great problem for a developing country to have? And which is why (laughs) I feel that the most important thing that I keep, I always stress that for developing countries, for economies that are challenged, focus on growing the pie, Okay. And the rules for managing conflict will evolve, okay. But if we finesse the rules of conflict, all right, most times it means we don't get the pie we want.
0: Well, all right. I'm going to go through a couple of challenges you faced along the board, and then just kind of as a quick answers because we, I don't, I want to be respectful of your time. So, you face a challenge now that many really successful entrepreneurs face, and that's a scaling problem. And of course you had a particular scaling problem because your whole va- your whole value proposition was based on the values of the firm and the quality of it, the people and the talent of the people. So it's easy to go and buy 500 new machines. It's not so easy to buy 500 new talented, engaged, value driven, uh, people willing to work all hours to get this done. So you put together both, you recruited a lot of people from outside, so you became very attractive to other people, but also you put together a kind of academy and an access way. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, because you're growing so fast, how do you keep the quality up so high for so long?
1: So it was clear to me that in the, for the first 10 years, I interviewed everybody we recruited.
0: And these are thousands of people, yes?
1: Yeah, I do. I must have done uh over that period, between seven thousand to 10,000. Wow. I interviewed in the night, uh, late and people <laughs> it was well that's when but I interviewed these guys. But for us, we knew that the core uh, of our of our talent would come from the entry level program. And so uh, you know, Nigerians and for a number of other African nations, Nigerians fall into that high IQ nation uh, uh, typology that you have across the world, okay? Um, and for Africa, I think the highest, uh, one of the, I think it's the highest IQ nation in Africa. So look, I can tell you one thing, which is clear. If you go to a classroom of a grade school anywhere in the world, you are likely to find Nigerians in that classroom. Mm-hmm. And you are likely to find Nigerians doing well in that classroom. So, you know, one thing for an investor into Nigeria is that uh, you will not lack for talent. Now, it may not be the finished uh, product, mm. okay, but the potential talent that you need is very much resident in Nigeria. And in fact, in huge numbers, and we have a great un- unemployment problem. The issue then is how do you finish this talent? Right, And that is what you know you don't have enough of an investment in across board you know in terms of the academic institutions etc things are getting better now but still some. so we created this academy and we we have this uh five month boot camp okay where we just stretch these people to the very very ends of their abilities uh and um by the time they come into the into the bank they are pretty much ready for this type of high pressure environment that we've created
0: and how many people enter and how many people succeed at the boot camp
1: well i think it speaks to how because this is one of the reasons why i was interviewing all these people right okay? because we found that if we had this uh, 40% pass rate it was becoming too expensive and i, I wanted gotcha. to that. initially it was like but i wanted more of an a 70 80% pass rate okay so then we began we be, that was when so our recruitment process was as important as the as the uh, education that they got. Okay. And so we moved from a 40% pass rate to a, an 80% pass rate. And so, each class had 30 people.
0: Okay. So you had better selection, and then with the better selection, you got better graduation, but still you had 70 80%, which meant 20% was not making it through.
1: Yeah. And the principal reason why they couldn't make it through wasn't the the intellectual capacities was more about the readiness to do what it takes to work in this type of high pressure
0: right and you also you tell the story that you exited several you kind of cleared the decks of the bank of people without the skills or the desire to implement your new culture
1: well and, you know, it's not, yes
0: and you did this what i thought was interesting you did it this was a risk you took early on without consulting the board at all and why was that a necessary step? Both, you know, both the exiting, which is more obvious, but also, why didn't you tell the board before you did this?
1: First of all, it's never a pleasant thing to do. That's what I wanted to interject. Sure, sure. People at scale. When I say, you know, like so, because I've exited as much as you know, fifty percent of a workforce. Mm. Okay. Um, so it's not easy to do uh, on your on your on your own emotional. Um, Uh, stability uh, when you're doing it but you have to do it if you have problems at that level Um, now in this case when we got into access bank remember I told you that we had a number of highly influential owners okay and you know big men in society so with big men in society uh comes you know uh the societal benefit of recruiting or being able to give jobs to people who you know well okay. and since you know and yeah you, you know so uh it wasn't a it wasn't strange that when we had to take out those who we felt could not could not cope with the requirements of the job that a lot of them had relationships with these guys. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. And so I mean going to them you know and these were our board members. Going to our board members and saying you have this nephew or you have that niece or you have your best friend's uh, child, okay, and you know we're going to have to ask them to leave was just not. No, made. yeah, yeah, yeah it wasn't. You know, so we took a risk, and we did it without informing them, <laughs> and it led to all types of all hell broke loose. But you know the funny thing is that if they had wanted to uh, really push the case. It would have been really unfortunate for the, for access bank. But at the end of the day, what won them over was the reality that they agreed with us that this was necessary. Yeah.
0: yeah. So yeah. The, the the fact that they knew that it needed to happen, made it easier to do. Another big strategic choice you, you make, and you say it throughout the book that you, you have this philosophy of always pursuing a good relationship with the regulator and that this is the key to sustainability. Now, can you tell us a little bit? Because when, when you got when you took over Access Bank, we've already talked a little bit about this foreign exchange malpractice, and you found some foreign exchange malpractice in the bank after after you took it over, and your strategy for dealing with that led to a huge expansion in your forex business. How did uncovering malpractice? Can you tell us a story that you you buy this bank and you go oh. Look, oh my God, look at this, this, this is ha- this is not good. But you turned it into this massive opportunity. How did you do that?
1: So when I say um, you should have a good relationship with your regulator, it comes from the perspective that, you know, regulators are human beings themselves. So they also have their priorities. They have their, um, they also want to look good you know, um, and the last thing that a regulator wants uh, are institutions that make them look bad. Okay? So, for me, being in the good books of your regulator is not about agreeing with them all the time, but it's doing things, right, as a Nigerian bank that makes your regulator look good because they are regulating banks of this nature. That's what I mean. Okay. And so, what we do is that, okay, fine. Um, We understand what your priorities are. So your priorities could be financial inclusion, your priorities could be price stability, et cetera. And we, okay, show the whole world how we are champions of financial inclusion, champions of price stability, et cetera, through our business practices, which is why sustainability is something that we embrace. And we show you, and we are prepared to, be used as your evidence that you know good things work. Now, if on the other hand, right from a regulatory standpoint, uh, we are unable to. Uh, but thus far, I mean, during my tenure, uh, I was I was blessed to have three gifted regulators or three gifted regulatory regimes uh, from Joseph Sanusi to Chukuma Soludo to Lamido Sanusi. You know, so um, uh, it wasn't much of a a, a problem. You know, being uh the flag bearer of good things. Now, um the, the issue you are talking about was foreign exchange. Now, when Joseph Sanusi, which was the central bank governor at the time when we bought Access Bank, came in, he came in with a zero tolerance for uh foreign exchange malpractice. He wanted to stop a lot of the things associated with um. Getting FX at one rate and selling it at another, and all those type of things, okay. Uh, and um, he said that if he, if if you were found to be uh, in, engaging in malpractice, he would punish you as an as a bank very, very, very sternly, okay. And when we got into Access Bank, you know, the first thing we learned or we found, and how we found this was that basically you know somebody comes and says here is uh come and approve this transaction and i'm saying what do you mean approve this transaction i'm not meant to be doing this and they say well but it's one of our most profitable lines and i say, oh so you do (laughs) it so then immediately we then engage on an audit and we find oh my god and so okay what do we do with this situation so you know we just said look listen right let's just go tell the central bank so we did the we did Everything we knew the central bank would do from an examination standpoint self-reported and give them the examination results. Okay. And, um, they then said, okay, you know what, uh, uh, because of how you've conducted yourself, et cetera, we would not punish the institution. Okay. We would give you a, a, a pass. Okay. And, uh, remember we sanctioned the individuals involved, you know, and so on. Okay, and and, uh, uh, we had to refund all, we self-refunded all the uh, excess amounts and so on. Now, however, there were 40 other banks that were punished. And the punishment was simply that you would not be able to deal in foreign exchange for one year. That means you don't process letters of credit, you can't do trade transactions and so on. For a full year. One year one full year. And this was the most lucrative part of banking business at the time. Yeah. So, but it then had economic effects because these people had customers, et cetera, et cetera, for them to now, for their customers to change and so on would take, you know, the hardship on their customers would have been immense. So um, we came up with a solution. And that solution was that we would be the trade finance provider to the customers of these banks that had been affected but we had to do it on the basis that the banks would trust that we would not prey on their customers thereafter and we would not demarket them during the period and so on and because of our size we were very small because of um, the fact that we had strong relationships you had alluded to the fact that you know it wasn't that we were not strangers and people didn't know what we stood for and so on it worked so, like so, a
0: white white label service, almost
1: correct. And so, after three months, we were doing uh, all the trade finance business for those <laughs> institutions. And so, you remember this access bank that you know nobody knew became, I think, the second largest trade finance bank coming out of Nigeria.
0: That's amazing. So, look, listeners out there, there is literally. Tens of these kind of stories of challenges you met. There was the access, the the, the challenge of becoming a clearing bank. There was the challenge of raising twenty five billion for capital requirements. There's there's all through this wonderful book. There's these kind of it, it it reads really like kind of a financial adventure story. And I would I would highly recommend it um, because it wasn't just one choice. It wasn't just a brilliant uh, strategy and uh, to to take advantage of a value proposition. It wasn't. Being able to scale and manage the the values through that it was it was through these incredibly difficult, challenging, but highly strategic decisions that um, Egg made throughout the, the the process that that led to the great success of Access Bank. And then in two thousand thirteen, you go on to other things. Before we get into that, just briefly, you write something in the in the book that I, I think is it struck me as interesting. And I just want to quote what you wrote here. You say, corruption has implanted the virus of mediocrity in several aspects of Nigerian life to the point where our performance in many fields of endeavor is much worse today than it was 50 years ago. I like this term, implanted the virus of mediocrity. Now, we all, you know, there's obvious problems that arise from corruption, but you you pick this one to focus on, this virus and mediocrity. Can you tell me what you mean by that term?
1: So when you speak about corruption in Africa, people tend to romanticize the issue to, we are looking for angels versus, you know, the devils. Yeah. and. There's corruption in every society because corruption simply as defined is spoiling something that has good in it. That's right, right. So you, have a good, you have a good program, a uh, computer program, and you corrupt it. Uh, and it doesn't, it ceases to function in the way and manner that it was you know, set up or designed to function, just for example. So um, for me, I think that the issue for Nigeria and the issue for Africa is less the distinction between angels and demons Mm -hmm. and more the fact that both angels and demons suffer ultimately because you take merit out of a societal system and replace it with mediocrity. And as any environment or any society embraces mediocrity as its, um, its common standard, it's going down a slippery slope to you know, destruction. Mm. Or put it this way, all right, it stands still at best whilst the rest of the world you know, moves on. So um, when Nigeria was far less corrupt, the measure versus now that Nigeria is far more corrupt is the amount of mediocrity that is accepted in as our default standard. Um, And that is why there was a time when um, we had in Nigeria, in the 70s, a training camp for athletes in my state, in Edo State where I come from, that was put together by a state governor because he wanted to win, He, he wanted his, state athletes to win the national uh, sports, annual sports, uh, national sports competition. He built this outstanding sports facility in Edo State, where athletes from all over Africa came to train when they were training for the Commonwealth Games, uh, African Games, Olympics. And in that camp, were built world beaters. Today, If we want to win anything, we send our athletes outside
0: Mm. to train,
1: okay? So I'm just giving you um, uh, uh, what happens when you take merit out of society. Nigeria's greatest problem with corruption was the fact that it gave an excuse for merit to be pushed down in terms of priority. A mediocrity to be embraced.
0: Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. All right. So for all of the stories of the of the bank and, and your different time there, please I advise everybody to buy and read the book. It is, it is really fantastic. And get you out of here on a couple of questions. Your your current role is in, in something called coronation capital. And I, I've heard that you want to create something like an African BlackRock. And I think that this goes from from all through your career. What I see is this passion and believing that if you want development, you have to have developed financial industry and capital markets. And it looks like to me that you've you've continued this kind of lifelong quest now in in a kind of private equity form through Coronation Capital. Can you tell me what you mean by when you when you talk about an African BlackRock?
1: So the Access Bank story was very much about building an african multinational that provided the very very best solutions when it comes to deposits lending and money transfer payments okay today access bank has 40 million customers covers operations across maybe 25% of Africa and a number of, um, I think every continent in the world and continues to grow under Herbert's leadership. When I was leaving the bank, I knew that we had a a lot of unfinished business in other aspects of financial services. And I distinguished between the deposit money banking side of things, which I called the shorter end of the market and the longer end of the market, which is very much developmental oriented. The the, the type of financial services upon which nations are built. Capital markets, insurance, uh, basically what you call investment management. That is how nations are built. And um, the the Nigeria in particular faced one problem, which was that the, the practitioners of this art this fine art of investment management uh went from being investment managers investment bankers investors to commercial bankers because that that business model including myself by the way okay that Mm -hmm. business model seemed to be the, the the more uh profitable and so i said okay fine uh let's do what we did in access bank in the long money side of things. And I looked at an institution that fascinated me, BlackRock, uh, given the time period within which from start to where it is now as the largest uh, manager of money globally, you know, you're yeah, talking well, you know, 30 years, you know, uh, and under. And I thought, you know, this is something that, you know, could be, um Pursued this type of ambition with Africa as your horizon, and so um, Coronation Capital is the tip of the spear, but it is not. It's not just a private equity business. It's an integrated investment platform that combines private equity, venture capital, venture building, asset management, insurance, investment banking, wealth, and you know wealth management, and so on. With Coronation as you know, as the brand uh, name, okay. Uh, And um, we are now expanding beyond Nigeria into, uh, we are in Ghana and the African rollout is about to, to commence. I'm older and wiser. The world is also certainly a much more sophisticated place than when we started with Access Bank. And probably most importantly, you know, we have, all the goodwill and uh, relationships that, you know, come with the access bank story, you know, uh, and that's what we're pursuing now.
0: Fascinating. Before I ask you the last question, you graduated from Triumph in 2016. And I'm fascinated, looking back now, how did the Triumph program fit into this whole picture? Because by the time you joined Triumph, you, you had I suppose you were in the process of writing this book or finishing up this book. And you were hugely, by any measure, inspirationally successful. And at that point, you chose to go back and do another degree. How did that choice get made? And tell us a little bit about your time in Triumph.
1: So the first thing is, why would I go for the Triumph program? By the time that I made the decision to apply to the Triumph program, we had already embarked on the Africa BlackRock journey. And I spoke to you about the fact that this involves a lot of investment management. Mm -hmm. And it also involves a lot of venture capital, venture building technology. And it also involves a lot of, building teams from, with talent from many countries, okay? um, many backgrounds and many orientations. Now, I am always my own strongest critic. And I looked at myself as a leader of this process and I asked myself, okay, what are the things that you would like to address in terms of your abilities? The first was that I wanted to be able to speak to a generation that was coming after me, and I needed to understand the way they they they, they thought, um, and to be able to win their trust. I wanted to very quickly uh, inter- interact with people coming from multiple geographies, multiple cultures, in their own context, not. In classrooms in uh, Boston or in London only. Okay. Right. I've spoken about growing the pie and this strong political economy reality as being an influence to success. You have also spoken in terms of, and I also wanted so development, development economics, and the history of uh, development and the nexus between government and business was also very important to me. So essentially. I said, okay, I want to go back to school, do an executive MBA, all right? Let me look for one that would be relevant to these things that I'm talking about. And Tram was the strongest.
0: Well, we were lucky to get you, I I tell you. It it has always been a humbling experience on my side of the classroom to see people uh, of accomplishment like yourself on the other side. And it's, uh, it's through that, as you said, the kind of community of people from many different places with many different ideas that, that hopefully something magical happens when you're all together like that and you get something out of it that you couldn't get from any single place. But listen, I'm going to make an observation and then I'll ask you my last question. So I'm looking from the outside and obviously in retrospect, but it seems to me that you've spent a lot of your life getting to the point where you can begin to resurrect that quality and status and respect of professionalism that you saw in the civil service when you were growing up. In your parents' time, that, as I said, was in the civil service. Now with Access Bank and beyond, you've kind of, in a way, resurrected the importance of this professionalism in a kind of hybrid case for the modern world. I mean, it's a private organization, but it's enmeshed in, it relies upon, it's co-supported by civil and regulatory authorities. But these institutions, these organizations, you cajole, persuade, pursue civil institutions in a way to join you as respected professionals. And this crossing point between civil and private life that you found a way to resurrect that professionalism that you saw before. And, and your life, in a way, has been dedicated to creating a kind of proof of concept of the energy and the profit and the development and, and good in its larger sense, good that this respected professionalism can unleash for Nigeria and Africa and beyond. And I just think that it's a, that's why we started with this story of you watching the status of the professional Nigerian civil service a road before your eyes, and, and, and with it, the, the status of your parents. And in a way, I look back at your life and see this as, a, as one dedicated to, to recreating that entity and unleashing the, all the energy that can come from it. So I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that, that's one way to see this kind of circle of your life. And for me, it's an inspirational story.
1: Thank you, Matt. Um, you know, I spent the past four weeks, involved in uh, the process required to bury your mother. And, you know, my mother who passed away at the age of 79, June eighth, was buried last weekend. And in everything, as we celebrated her life, she was a civil servant who can best be described with the words you've just used. Probably my greatest mentor. And for most children of parents who worked in the civil service, their parents tend to be their greatest mentor. And through her life, the many things that propelled me um, were evident. My mother was a lover of art and probably started Nigeria's first private art gallery. My mother was a mobilizer of women when women were still very much put down and still are in our very paternalistic Nigerian-African society and made calls uh, for women when way, way before her time. Now, all I'm saying here is that this was a typical Nigerian civil servant, my mom. And she operated at a level of courage and intellect that would motivate people anywhere. And so I use her many times in the work I do with the civil service alongside uh, my wife in the Aigemokode Foundation, when I say, to them that we can build a Nigerian civil service that the whole world will not just respect, but will be inspired by. And that's what I'm dedicating all of this financial reward of the exertions that I'm involved in, whether as access bank or whatever towards actually turning around the Nigerian civil service. And, you know, it's the experience from Access Bank and the reality of being a child of civil servants that has made me believe that we can do it. And of course, I must add that um, Triumph, especially what I learned from our LSE times, okay, um, has given me a lot of skill that I bring to bear as well as my wife who didn't do the trial program but has a master's from LSE as well. So basically what we are trying to do now is transform the Nigerian civil service even though I'm not a public official. And we are getting so much cooperation from the government in that regard, particularly the civil servants. And maybe the next time we talk, okay, right? We will focus on that part of my life. It's more exciting than anything I've done. It's more fulfilling than anything I've been engaged in. But I just hope that we do succeed to the degree that we succeeded with Access Bank in turning around the Nigerian civil service.
0: I think it would be an honor and a privilege to talk to you again about that. And you know, I have no doubt uh, that your mother was an inspirational leader in her own right and she must have been very proud of to have an inspirational leader as, as as her son as well all right thank you egg for a wonderful conversation i just have one last question uh to pose to you before we let you go at the end of each episode i always ask the guests for a recommendation uh, a book or a film or a game something that has uh, helped them get through the crisis the COVID crisis. And and in this instance, though, I'd like to ask a slightly more focused question. Um, Can you give us a title of a work or works that you believe that would give our listeners a better understanding of modern Nigeria?
1: Thank you. Um, And so it's a good note to end our conversation on. Um, There are two, well, one film and one book that I'd like to recommend. The film is titled 93 Days. And it's based on the true events of how Nigeria dealt with the 2014 Ebola pandemic. Uh, It stars Danny Glover, who I happen to to like. Uh, But more importantly, I think it speaks volumes about the capacity, courage, and greatness of Nigerians when our system is not corrupted by mediocrity. Because um, I mean, you may not know this, or you may, um, Nigeria's, the Nigerian case study with respect to how we handled the Ebola crisis uh, was was just fantastic. And in many regards, um, has laid the standards for Africa and the world in terms of um, pandemic responses. And it was very useful for Africa's first uh, response actually to COVID-19, which is adjudged to be generally very good. Uh, we've been quite fortunate from a number of other perspectives as far as COVID-19 is concerned. But I think 93 Days is a film that, you know, anybody should watch. Of course, I must add that um, I kind of had personal connection to the story because some of the health workers, the frontline health workers, in fact, one of probably the most prominent one was a lady, a very courageous doctor who who put her life, you know, first for Nigerians and the world. And she lost her life in the process. Um, The book is Fighting Corruption uh and um that's it's fighting corruption is dangerous i think that's the, the title uh authored by um who is currently the director of the director general of the wto uh the world trade organization she used to be a nigeria's finance minister and her book is all about uh the challenges of reform and when powerful vested interests fights reform efforts um and again in this instance i kind of had a front row seat to the key issues Um, because Ngozi actually recruited me to join her in her fight against the abuse of fuel subsidies. In the process, her mother was kidnapped. Uh, My family had to leave Nigeria. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, uh, you know, this is... This This is is real life. This is real life, yeah. So I guess, you know, the message is that, you know, it's not possible to be, um, to change things that need to be changed, you know, without, you know, receiving some bruises in the process. Um, But, you know, if the things are important enough to you and to the world, you've got to do it.
0: Those sound fascinating. So 93 days and fighting corruption is dangerous and they both, it sounds like to me, the theme there is um, courage courage in the face of, uh, of danger, but courage that results in uh, outcomes that we all uh, desire.
1: I couldn't have put it any better, Matt. Spot on.
0: All right. Well, Egg, thank you very so much for joining me. And I hope we get to uh, speak again soon.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.